let's turn our attention to the subject that is on the screen. And, you know, if, if today we said, instead of you listening to me, let's turn this conversation back to you at the tables and said, well, let's discuss this. And at your table, you explored this whole area. More than likely, the track you'd be on would be, let's look at the character of the individual in the workplace. And let's also look at the quality of their work, uh, that it's exceptional. And then let's look at all the abilities that would come in their work, that's reliability, dependability, accountability, all those things. And frankly, they have to be present in our conversation about glorifying God in the workplace. But I want to come at this with a slightly different tack, if I may. So I want to come at it a little bit differently and build out the driver behind what we do in the workplace as Christians. Now, if you look at the, the context of glorifying the Lord in our work, what an enormous theme. And I'm going to handle it, at least at this point, in one slide. And it is an immense topic. All throughout Scripture, we are reminded that our God should be glorified. I mean, if Isaiah 6, 3 is that the whole earth is full of his glory. You cannot turn your mind to anything the eye can see or anything that the Lord has created in his universe and not explore it and not come away shouting his glory, his majesty. It's amazing. That's, that just resonates in our heart. His own creation will declare the glory of God. His people will declare the glory of God. His glory is intrinsic to him. He is not glorious because we ascribe that to him. He is glorious because he is God. And we are so grateful for that. And so as you examine then, how is that going to affect me in the workplace? Well, in describing it, I would have to say we would be consumed with a Godward mindset, a, a God consciousness. It was once said of John Calvin by a historian that he was intoxicated with God. Now, Mark said we do share a love for the Reformation. As I listened to him, I was intent and also saying, uh-oh, he's using some of my material, but I think he read ahead and he used my material. <laughs> and I'm kidding. Um, if, if you asked me to speak on baseball, I would turn it to church history because the Reformers love baseball. But let's set the scene for the Reformation, because several of the speakers have really reminded us that it's a view of work that we have to have, have as a Christians, a worldview that is influenced by, by it. But let's roll back the clock to the worldview that would have been in the medieval times. Um, they didn't call it the Dark Ages only because of the plague and the sickness and the death. It was the suppression of truth. I mean, one of the famous uh, statements made about the Reformation is, after darkness, light. And that light was really made very bright by the Reformers and a number of them. But one of the tenets behind the darkness was this, is that there was a sacred calling and then there was a secular calling. And the Roman church was very good at letting you know that the jobs that mattered to God, these are the ones that really had significance and worth, were the ecclesiastical orders of the church. In other words, you were a priest, a nun, a monk, a bishop. These are the things that really mattered to God. And all the other uh, functions in life, whether you were a baker, a farmer, a banker, these were menial. And the people were made to feel that way. 
That, by the way, is actually still resonant even in our world. Sometimes we talk about the, the privilege of some being, someone being called into ministry. And I always think when I hear that, we have a calling by the very fact that we work. And that's what I want to unpack today and what we're talking about. After Luther's conversion, he was the first to really change the whole view of this. And I would encourage you to, on your own, you could even Google this and get some very good things of just Luther's view of work, Calvin's view of work. But Luther really turned this on its head. And so much so, it wasn't just because he was disappointed and and at odds with the Roman church. But as already Mark pointed out, the priesthood of the believer meant that there is dignity in our world and our life and what God calls us to. So he expressed this as what we are in our workplace is the mask of God. If you go back to theater in this time, one actor could often play very many different parts. They would just hold up a mask. They would speak through it or act out their part. But the mask was understood that there was someone else behind the mask. And Luther felt like that as God held or we were being held up by God, we were the mask of God. There's also something else that comes out that we understand in Scripture, and that is that our God is kind on this earth to his creation. Even in the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord had said he allows the sunshine to shine on both those who are evil and those who are good. The rain falls on those who are righteous as well as unrighteous. Our God is kind to his creation. And so as you do the work you do, and this is what Luther came to understand, is that whatever role you play in the economic food chain or, or a tradesman or those who may help with raising children or medicine. You are the mask of God. This is God blessing his creation through you. And so elevate your thinking of what it is you do for a living. It's not the menial drudgery and, boy, when is it going to be Friday? There is something different about a Christian in the workplace. Luther coined the idea that if a milkmaid was milking a cow and that milk was delivered to others and they enjoyed the milk. It was as if God himself had milked the cow. He did it to bless his creation. So he offered some dignity and uh, really just kind of changed the whole view of this. Well, we can also thank the, the reformers for some solidification of doctrine. Uh, we know and, and appreciate the five solas. And the five solas really were kind of the battle cry of the Reformation, the very first being sola scriptura, which is that the Bible is the sole and final authority on all matters of life and godliness. The church looks to the Bible as her ultimate authority. Then you have sola gratia and sola fide, which is by grace alone we are saved, by faith alone. And as you know, Luther's famous uh, heart cry was justification by faith alone. And these are all touching on salvation, obviously. Then you have solus Christus, which is by Christ alone. He is the sole mediator. His work on the cross has purchased our redemption. It is only through him that we are saved. Those are the four solas. But for the believer, they're they're summed up in the fifth, and this is where it actually provides emphasis to what we do. And that is sola dea gloria, to God's glory alone. Not only is salvation what we can glory in, in what our Savior has done for us, but now all of life becomes really my offering back to him to be part of what he is doing in common grace around this world. 
Calvin actually took it to a, a, another whole level. Uh, Calvin came, he was not a contemporary of Luther uh, as such, but he was about 22, 23 years later. And he was heavily influenced while in Paris uh, at his own conversion by Luther's writings and had a great respect for Luther. And he understood Luther's position on work, vocation, calling. And he took it to another whole level. And this, if you follow this pathway, it's fascinating to see what was the city of Geneva before Calvin came and after he died some 40 years later after ministering in that city for 38 years, how did he leave the city? It was amazing the economic impact that Calvin in his own lifetime, not just his legacy, which is in itself amazing, but the impact he had. Um, they, they had a city that is estimated to be at about 20,000 when he came. They had three printers, they had a few merchants, and they had one bank. By the time he left, there were over 30 printers, innumerable merchants, and an entire beehive of activity had grown up in Geneva. And his influence spread beyond the city of Geneva. I mean, Geneva was a free city. So the Huguenots, as they were being persecuted in France for, for their faith, and they're coming across the border. As you know, Geneva borders France. As they're coming across the border to Geneva, they're coming to the Geneva Academy, which not only taught on things of religion, but it also was a liberal arts college. And so they are being built up as they come across, but they're being built up spiritually. Then you have, after Queen Mary comes to the throne in England, you have everyone fleeing, including John Knox, fleeing and coming to Geneva. And so the city is seeing a flood of immigrants come into it who are coming for safety, but by God's divine plan. They're coming really under the shepherding leadership of John Calvin and his company of pastors. What came from this in centuries that followed you have what is known as the Puritan work ethic. And this is to be an industrious person, to work hard, to be diligent, to see what your hands do as being offered up to God. It just changed the entire view or amplified what Luther had already started. And it was first known as the Puritan work ethic. We came to know it, spoken of here, as the Protestant work ethic. So the, pilgrim, the Puritans were enormously impacted by this. They became the pilgrims. Pilgrims come to America. So much so that this has influenced our own nation, capitalism, our form of government, in fact. Calvin believed that you needed to have a government that was represented by the people, that it was very limited. He spoke on market economics. He was a brilliant man, brilliant man. He was so recognized in his 500th birthday in 2009 in July, the Washington Post ran an article. You can Google it and read it, and it's called Calvin our founding father. He had so influenced the Scottish, the Irish pastors who came to America as immigrants and wanted America to be a city set on a hill, separate to the glory of God, and that was their aspiration. I think we still live under the sunshine of that, uh, even today, that God continues to bless our nation, even with all the calamity we've seen, even of, of recent uh, weeks. But what the reformers taught impacted lives, and it impacted lives into the everyday man, the ordinary person. As you look at even, uh, you know, Johann Sebastian Bach, Bach put at the end of every composition that he made either SDG, Sole Dei Gloria, or wrote it out. 
He wanted the works, the creative works of his heart and mind. He knew it came directly from God, and he gave God the credit for this. Well, let me make this very practical and kind of bring this down to your world, my world right now. And I want you to think about this. The title of the slide is God's Sovereignty Over Your Life. Now, read through all of the various bullets that are there. Everything that constitutes who you are, everything, the family you were born into, your mother and father's characteristics, how many brothers and sisters you had, what were their characteristics like, where did you live, where did you get your education, what school didn't you choose but you got into the school uh, you know, th- that you ultimately went to, did you do postgraduate work, what is your skill set? I mean, it's, it's one thing to be spiritually gifted as a result of our salvation, but God has wired you to have a certain skill set, aptitudes, abilities, intellect. Uh, some people find it enormously easy to work with computers, and others are artistic. I mean, God just made into your life a life that's as unique as your fingerprint. There is no other you on the planet. And you'd have to think that that intentional of a God that has designed you to be as individual as you and I are, that he wouldn't have left it to chance to what we do with most of our life during the week, and that is our work. Under the providence of God, you are who you are, and his sovereignty touches everything. There is no minor detail here. There's all the majors and all the minors that we can look at, uh, even your interests. And so all of that builds out an opportunity for us to engage the gospel as part of who he made us and the opportunities that he has given us. Let's roll back the clock just for a second to the time that you came to know the Lord when you were saved. We know from 2 Corinthians 5 that if you're a new creation in Christ, if you're in Christ, all things have become new. Not just most things, all things. Sin's dominion over our life to where we were enslaved to sin, incapable of righteousness, incapable of pleasing God, all that's been changed with our salvation. So whatever we do, whatever in our life that we do can be done to the glory of God because of our new creation. Life can now be lived day to day as an act of worship to him. Before I was incapable of pleasing God, now the works of my hands, the thoughts that I have, the love for others, the gospel that is shared, can all bring glory to him. Now not only has it brought a new perspective, it brings an entirely new purpose. So now that let's bring this down to our work. Uh, because God is sovereign, I can now look at what I do for a living, how I spend my time, whether I'm a, a, a mommy with you know, three or four little ones around the house, whether I'm a nurse, a teacher, a lawyer, if I'm a mechanic, if I spray weeds for lawns, everything I do can be committed to our Creator to use to His glory in the expanse of His gospel. And I am confident that the Lord will just create opportunities for us in in that realm. So this new purpose, you not only have your day job, that whatever it is you are on somebody's payroll for or you earn a living doing, Not only that, but we have one other assignment, and it's given to us very, very clearly here, and that is that we are an ambassador for Christ. An ambassador, as we all know, if if we were nominated and affirmed to be uh, the ambassador to England, 
that an ambassador doesn't go with their own agenda. An ambassador goes as a messenger of the one who sent them. And they negotiate on behalf, or they declare or proclaim or urge or have to take positions based upon the one who has sent them. And what a beautiful picture of our world that we go into every week, seven days, and that we are engaging the world as an ambassador. My real job is the gospel. And so the Lord is going to allow that whatever I do in life will enhance my ability to act as an ambassador. In this particular passage, I always find this passage interesting, in 1 Corinthians 3, where there's the division there in the Corinthian church about, uh, you know, I followed Paul, well, you know, I was, you know, came to know the Lord through Apollos, and you have all these divisions, they were prone to that anyway. But it's interesting that what comes out of this passage about a church that was usually divided on the color of the carpet, um, that I'm sure probably posed an issue for them as well, is that there's kind of three stages to what we do in the role of being an evangelist in our work or in our marketplace, in our life. One is you may be meeting someone where your role here is to throw the initial seed. Your role is to give the gospel in its clarity so that they have an understanding of what is this gospel? What should my response be? That's one. So I could be throwing the seed. It might be that as I meet people in my work as I meet people in the neighborhood or at school, that really they have that already. Now I need to cultivate what they already know. And now I need to be able to be there to answer their questions, to encourage them to repent, to encourage them to be reconciled to God. And then you might have the opportunity, because this is all of God's business. He allows us to be co-laborers in this field. But we really are observers of the grace of God, the miracle of salvation. And many times we get to be a participant, and an observer in what he and he alone can bring about in a life. Now, I want to turn this to some very practical things that might be helpful. I I know that whenever you think about being a witness at work, there's some complexities to that. Some of you may own an organization, so the decision of whether or not you're going to put a sign on the door that says this business is committed to Christ would be all yours. But for a lot of us, we work for people. We work for organizations that the charter is not about gospel uh, dissemination. We work for someone, and we have to be very careful how we engage so that we don't create a problem for our employer, but we want to be faithful to our real employer, to the Lord. So let me give you just some ideas. This is, at best, what I'm about to show you is a starter kit. As you think about how can I now put myself in a situation where I can talk about the Lord, what he's done in my own life, and to present the gospel and to do it in a meaningful way, not a just quick throwaway lines. So let me give you some things that are purposely designed to have somebody else ask you questions. The whole purpose of this is to allow somebody else to inquire of you, why do you do that? Why do you have that? What does this mean? It was kind of like what Mark did a few minutes ago. It was brilliant to let these students ask 100 questions. You know what he's really doing? Somebody in here is going to ask a question he can answer with something that will exalt Christ or his relationship with with Christ or that he was saved, his relationship with his wife, and he'll build off that and the other question. It was just brilliant because now they're asking, all I'm doing is responding. So take a look at this list, and, and let me just give you, these are not rocket science, but I am going to give you what has worked, at least in a personal sense, 
for me. I actually now, as a director of sales for an investment firm, I work out of my home office. So my golden retriever gets absolutely no benefit out of coming into my office and seeing this. Uh, but when I did, in fact, actually work in an office, I tried to incorporate these things. So here we go. Keep a Bible in plain sight on your desk. It, it not up on a shelf, on somewhere that it's visible. If people have to come in and stand around your desk as they drink coffee or talk or ask you questions or you pull up things on the computer, have a Bible in a very visible place. The next thing is have Christian books on your bookshelf. Listen, your bookstore is full of theologically sound books, uh, and you can find some that would be useful. Buy them when they go on sale or just try to buy them so you'll have them, and you put them on your bookshelf with the clear intent that somebody's going to ask you about it, and you'd say, take it. And you give them the book because they ask about the book. So be very intentional with topic selection. It's not about you know how to succeed in life and throw in a few verses. This has to be what will get to the nature of sin and really their necessity to grapple with God's call on their life. Um, you should also, if I would encourage you to have some theologically sound tracks. Now, this is kind of a, a bug with me, but I, I just I marvel sometimes at the tracks that I see being used, sometimes in comic book fashion or frivolous, or they're so small that you, even if you're a Christian, you're having a hard time understanding what the gospel would mean uh, there. So I would encourage you to find tracks that are theologically sound and can help get the complete picture out of God's authority in our life, man's sinfulness, the need, what salvation is, and what it means to really repent. I like this track the best. It's Greg Gilbert's What is the Gospel? You may have read his book. His book is a little bit bigger than this. It's got a black cover, and it goes into a fuller, or more complete understanding of what is the gospel. He outlines it. But it's also a track. And I brought about 100 of them. Uh, they're being point, let's everybody look to the back. They're on that table over there, the resource table. I brought about 100, and so feel free to take one. By the way, they're on Amazon. If you Google, what is the gospel? And Greg Gilbert, the book will come up, but then this will come up. For 25, they're $2.99. So I just have these and have them available. I happen to spend a lot of my life on an airplane. And um, it's interesting because you can engage people in conversation. I try to keep these on me and my briefcase close at hand. If you have a conversation, brief as it might be, you're never going to see this person again, likely, is to say, look, I want to give you something that I'm going to ask you to read. You can give it to cab drivers. It's just so easy if you have a theologically sound track, one that will lead them appropriately through what they have to do when they consider the cost of yielding to Christ. Um, this is a favorite church history guy has to come up with this, right? Read a book on the Reformation and... There are several good ones, but I like to bring up the fact uh, that I teach church history. People look at you like you have two heads. Then I say, the emphasis is on the Reformation. Okay, what's the natural question? Why the Reformation? And I can then unpack the gospel in my explanation of why the Reformation. And it is, what is man's source of authority? Sola Scriptura. What is man's real need, and how does he become right with God? Sola gratia, sola fide. And then how does he you know, settle this? You know, he's obviously under the condemnation and wrath of God, sola Christus. 
And so you can walk through the salvation message by just talking about the Reformation. So if, if you read the book, had it on your desk, and somebody would say, wow, what's that all about? You can give the gospel by saying, you wouldn't believe what happened in the 16th century. So you're not having to probe it hard or put yourself in an awkward position. It can be very conversationally, or conversational. You'll also have, as you work with people, one of the, the benefits of working with people over a long period of time is that they get to know you. And you're hoping that's good and not all bad. But uh, look at the amount of time you spend with your family. Who knows your strengths and weaknesses better than your family? And when you work with a team of people or the same people for four, five, six, ten years, well, you have an opportunity. You are on display in good and bad times. And so the Lord has allowed you an opportunity for them to see the richness of your life, even sometimes the, the, the stumblings in your life, uh, and put that on display. Um, I would encourage you, if you, I have an entire hard drive full of PDFs and articles that I can use with people through the whole process, either apologetics or church history or on salvation. Some of these are small, some are large, some are PDF, some are eBooks. And I would encourage you, email me if you'd like just some samplings of those so you could have them on your computer, you meet somebody at work or in the neighborhood that you want to send this to, I'd be delighted to share those with you. But I mentioned a minute ago, because of our work, we are on display. So what's the hope that we have as our life is on display? And that is that, boy, this is just fantastic. You know, in, in my world, it would be sales are up. Uh, you know, things are running good. And so people get to applaud you and your effort, and you can give the credit to the Lord. But you know there's the other side of the coin. And that is, I think sometimes the Lord allows us to have to display at times what would be a business reversal, that things don't go the way they thought they would, the product doesn't perform, the client base doesn't come the way they should, or there's just flat out there's failure, this, this thing didn't work. And how a Christian processes that, not to be blaming people or upset, the way we handle failure I think sometimes helps to profile who our God is more than success. So I, I just encourage you with that. Let me turn this to a, a more of a personal testimony. Fifteen years ago, I was diagnosed with leukemia. And in the process, by the way, I had the kind that if you're a sissy, this is the kind you want. This is the kind I had. I, I didn't have a death sentence. Uh, they said, you're going to have six months of chemo and things should go on. That was true. It just came back last year, so I had to go through another six months of chemo. So I had leukemia 15 years ago, and I just finished chemo about six weeks ago. And again, same thing. You just treat it, and you're so thankful for the common grace here in America of the best healthcare delivery system on the planet. Thank you, Lord, for that. But 15 years ago, when I had the news, you have leukemia. I mean, whenever you hear cancer, it, it does kind of cause you to pause and stop for a few moments as you realize, you know, baked into our life is that one day we will die if the Lord doesn't come. But when she, uh, my oncologist told me I had uh, leukemia, you know, I went home with my wife, we prayed about it, but I knew enough spiritually that I wasn't going to ask God the why question. He owns me. I'm not going to ask him the why question. Why me? I mean, I'm and grateful for his love. His goodness was demonstrated at the cross, not on whether or not I avoid major illness. I ask him the what question. And the what question is, Lord, what would you have me gain from this experience? And what I'm about to tell you, I was so humbled over uh, in what he impressed upon my heart. I'm embarrassed to tell you. I've, I've had the privilege of being an elder for 32 years. 
So if I tell you this took place 15 years ago, you're about to hear that about halfway through being an elder and, and all the richness that that brings into the life, that I'm going to confess to you that the Lord laid on my heart that I was saturated into the doctrines of grace. Just absolutely love that. And in the process of that, I would have been enthusiastic over all things evangelistic. And so if you'd have walked up to me on the street and said, how shall now I be saved? I would have said, step over here, and I would have outlined it beautifully. But what the Lord convicted my heart of is I am in a world where I meet people all over this nation all the time. And that I had not used the role that he had given me as really a, a lighthouse for the gospel. I was so ashamed of myself. I resolved it would not be that way going forward. And believe me, I've not been perfect about it. But the word intentional has been used here so many times, it's actually going to be my last slide, is intentional. Is that it, I suddenly realized I'm going to have to be intentional. I'm going to have to look for ways to engage people in conversation. I'm going to have to present really a conversation that drifts into a particular area that would likely cause them to ask me questions. And so it has not been perfect. You have to grow in this. But you, if you ask the Lord to please open opportunities for me, they're there already. You're really having to kind of open your eyes and, and see them or seize them. But to be very intentional about people. Because our real job is the gospel, to be an ambassador, to call men to be reconciled to their God. So in the process of this, I've got, some, I've got two illustrations to give you. Um, about seven or eight years ago, I'm flying home, and, and I'm in the Delta Sky Club right before the flight's going to take off from Memphis back to Raleigh, where I live. And So I walk over to the desk where the, the seating chart is for the uh, plane I'm about to get on, and I said, can you pull up the seating chart? And I looked, and the plane was full, except for two seats that were wide open right over on the wing. And I said, do you know what? Can you put me in the aisle and you know keep that other seat open if you can? So, and that was a joke because I won't. Um, so anyway, I get put in that seat, and it's one of those tiny little tin can airplanes, uh, and and you're hunched over, and I'm short to begin with, and I, you know, there's just no room for anything. And so I get in, and I kind of get into the aisle, and I'm kind of looking around. Everybody else is like this, and I'm ready for you know a long winter's nap from Memphis to Raleigh. And as I see the stewardess shutting the door, I hear. I hear something hoofing it down the concourse, and I thought, oh, this can't be good. And it turned out to be a bodybuilder. And I'm not a small guy. And you shouldn't be laughing because I said that. But I'm not a small guy, and I'm in the seat like this already, and in comes this guy. Yes. And, and, and to boot, he was a talker. Now, here's a guy who had resolved 15 years ago, Lord, give me open opportunities and whatever. And I'm blowing it in that respect. So he, he and I began to talk, and that was about eight years ago. He and I <clears throat> have stayed in touch to this day. He speaks to my heart about sometimes how we miss what God puts before us as open opportunities. He has not come to Christ yet. We've had spiritual conversations, lunches, given him Bibles, given him books. He's Jewish. He's a young 30-some guy enjoying life. He's a real estate agent. And we built such a friendship to this day if it is annual butterfly day in America, my wife and I get a card from him, and in the card he tells us how much he loves our family. Then we just entrust him to the Lord to open his eyes. So that's about eight years. It's a process sometimes with people, and I am hoping he yields to the Savior. Um, I got a call last month 
from a friend that actually I worked with back when I had leukemia 15 years ago. Way back then, it was at another investment firm, I gave him a MacArthur study Bible and said, I want to talk to you about what we're reading here, and I gave him a ton of materials because he had questions back then. It was 15 years ago. He called me last month to say, I understand now. I've come to Christ. That was 15 years. And what was funny is in the last six weeks before he made that phone call, he was calling me almost every week saying, hey, I need to talk to you, and what does Romans 9 mean? Oops. <laughs> okay. All righty. Um, let's get you saved, and then I'll untangle all that for you. <laughs> 15 years. And so what's my encouragement to you is sometimes evangelism is reduced to an ambush. It, and, and frankly, I know that there, there may be some of you sitting here with someone. John Glass is a perfect example of this. He's, he's backpacking as a, as a college kid in India, and a missionary passes him in a, in a few short minutes, gives him the gospel, and John Glass is a missionary today in Geneva. And so I'm, I'm not discounting that. But what I have at least seen in a lot of people's lives, you do have to count the cost what this means. You have to come to the full realization of being a sinner and that Christ is the only answer. And more than anything else, you've got to want righteousness. You've got to repent and desire to embrace the Savior. And sometimes that takes time. And in Tim's case, 15 years, he's Irish Catholic. I think they have a chromosome in Ireland that it is Catholic. And for him, it was just really trying to figure out how Catholicism mixes in with what we were trying to say, which was all of grace. And so you'll, you'll have both sides. And I, I just give God the credit, I do, that, that he allowed me to witness both of those. Um, I wish I could have told you that in leukemia number two, 2.0, in the update, um, that uh, that's when this hit me. It didn't. It hit me a couple of years ago. I just wish I could use it because it'd be such a cool story. But I can't. Several years ago, it, it dawned on me that as part of my visiting, and I, I, in my role as a national sales director, I both have a certain, I have the Northeast as part of a territory, I'm a player coach, and, and then I have to meet people all the time. And I was surprised at how many believers I was coming in contact with. And so here the Great Commission is go and make disciples. Now what is the natural tip of the spear of that? That they come to Christ. But it really means, yes, they come to Christ, but make them be a learner. Help them be a learner rather than make them. You're helping them to understand what does it really mean to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus? What does it mean to be a learner? And, and it dawned on me that all of these contacts, I take my, the business cards of the person that I've had a quality conversation with, I'm convinced they know the Lord. It isn't, it's possession, not profession. I get a good sense of that in the conversation. I put a star on their card in case I have to give it to anybody. I don't want in the corner Christian. Um, but it was my way of saying, and it, it was interesting to me how many Christians, and many of them with lots of theological questions. So you're not catching them all in a church like Grace Community Church, where you know they have excellent teaching and they got everything just kind of figured out in their lives. And, and now it's kind of taken on not only the opportunity to give the gospel, but what can I do to equip what the Reformers call the invisible church, that is, the elect, those are Christ's own, that you're going to come across who are believers but need to be strengthened, encouraged, prayed with, prayed for, and to help them. And so that's kind of the newer revelation I've had in the last several years is to not just only look for opportunities to share the gospel and kind of create conversations that go in that direction, but to also say, how can I bless the church? 
uh, and I'm going to wind up coming in contact with a number of people. So how does this relate to you? We started with, at the beginning of this, that God's sovereignty, every aspect of your life, right down to where you're at today, what job you're in, what station in life, where you find yourself, whether in school or, or after you know, your education is over, you're in transition, you're trying to figure out, do I go to the mission field? Do I stay here? Do I get married? All these kind of things. God's sovereignty is all at play in every one of these. But I would just encourage you to see the station in life, whatever condition you find yourself in now, is to say, Lord, how can I be a witness now? I think the most important part of this whole discussion about vocation and work and witness and work is to settle that you'll have the heart of an evangelist, that you'll look at the the newest next-door neighbor, the person that you'll be sitting next to in class, the person that's at work that's new to the job or they move you around, All of these are divine appointments that are not an accident that your paths cross. And so we are praying and asking the Lord to please give us the opportunity. Here's one last thing. This I haven't read this, so this is just me. I think there have been three monumental catalysts to just spread the gospel in the most amazing way in the last 2,000 years. One is Pax Romana. The fact that in the earliest days of, the early, of uh, what we, we would call the early church, shortly after the Lord's ascension, and then you have the church form, and Paul and Barnabas and others are just you know, transiting all over the Mediterranean, all that Roman territory, and then all those who have to flee persecution and are using Roman roads and Roman protection to go all over the Mediterranean where Rome had its empire. And they are going with the gospel, many of them, tradesmen and, and, and those who had to flee for safety. So I think Pax Romana was one of the, the biggest catalysts to the spread and dispersion of the gospel. The second in history, again, this isn't formal, it's kind of my view of it. The second is the Gutenberg Press. Luther and Calvin, if you look back, the amount of writing that they did, and I think the, the Reformation took... The, the deep roots that it did because of the writing. They were able to influence people like TMAI does right now, is to spread really the benefits of, of a master's seminary education and take it around the world. And I think the writings of Luther and Calvin and others in the Reformation, because of the Gutenberg printing press, it just disseminated and went to places they could never go. So that's the second. I think the third is what you're looking at. We're living in it. And to whom much is given, what's the finish to that? Much is required. We are living today in the most amazing age of globalization, global trade, global travel, global commerce. I mean, you can easily pick up the phone and talk to someone in Southeast Asia or in the middle of Africa, send them something through a PDF, uh, you know, to listen to uh, you know, an MP3 that you could send them through Dropbox. I mean, we're living in a day and age where my goodness, the responsibility we have to be conscious of every opportunity to use this for the gospel. So you may, you may right now be contemplating whether or not you would see the Lord take you and your vaca- vocation and go overseas. And that would be wonderful if you did, because you, we've touched on it a couple of times this morning. Many nations are hard to get into as a conventional missionary. There's restricted and it's just hard. And so coming in, as they did in the first century, where you're coming in with a trade and a witness 
to be able to exalt Christ and proclaim Christ through your work in a hard land uh, may be, that is a worthy cause. But even if you never go, if you work at Kraft or GE or Microsoft, to be there as their missionary. I want to just read you something here at the very end. Um, pardon me one second. I had, um, I pulled this quote right before I left. Sorry, I'm having a hard time finding it here. Here we go. Sorry about this. The famous uh, author who wrote the, the rise and fall of uh, the Roman Empire is Ed Gibbon. And he commented on what it meant in the first century to be one of the early Christians. And we always think about the impact that Paul had in Barnabas, and, and certainly Paul, amazing impact by God's grace and God's power in his life. But let me just read you this. Is, is speaking of really the, the spread of Christianity in, in, in almost an unexplainable way at that time. He said, how did this phenomena occur? Well, Gibbon wrote that in the early church, it became the most sacred duty of a new convert to diffuse among his friends and relations the inestimable blessing which he had received. Adolf Harnack, a great church historian, declared the most numerous and successful missionaries of the Christian religion were not the regular teachers, but the Christians themselves in virtue of their loyalty and their courage. It was characteristic of this religion that everyone who seriously confessed the faith proved of service in its propaganda. I'd have probably chosen a different word, but okay. We cannot hesitate to believe that the great mission of Christianity was in reality accomplished by means of informal missionaries. Informal missionaries. That's what Christians everywhere need to be. Thank you very much.